You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 84 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, and I am joined this week in studio by Jeremy Paxton. Uh, Kevin Cook is actually busy uh, covering high school basketball right now and just uh, getting his deadline in check, so he will not be joining us this week. But Joining us here in just a few minutes in studio is going to be Hunter Atkins. Uh, we discuss a little bit of Rockets basketball, a little bit of Astros spring training uh, as he gets prepared to head toward uh, Florida to cover the Astros for the next three weeks in spring training. But also we've got a great interview with Jerry Hill from the Baylor Bear Insiders. So if you like Baylor athletics, we have some uh, great conversation with him covering uh, Matt Rule and Baylor football as well as the job that both Scott Drew and Kim Mulkey have done this season for Baylor Athletics. But, uh, Jeremy, it's great to have you in studio this week. And uh, both you and I were at Rodeo Cookoff on Saturday, which arguably could be one of the greatest events in the city of Houston on an annual basis. But I think we both still smell like barbecue. Or is that just me? Wait, I was there last night because I, I don't remember anything <laughs> that happened after about 8 o'clock. Uh, I was at somewhere that looked like a carnival inside a tent. It was bizarre. I saw a couple faces. I think I remember you. But yeah, <laughs> I, I showed up. Uh, I, I woke up this morning face down in a ditch and it was raining and it was really scary. And thankfully, I'm, I, I got back to safety and now I'm here podcasting with you. I didn't know that happened after you had left. Yeah, yeah, it was a it was a rolling blackout last night. For me, so. <laughs> well, it was a lot of fun. Uh, pretty much all the barbecue and all the drinks that you could have, and uh, the the weather wasn't the best, but it was still fun to uh, hear great music, be with great friends, and uh, just enjoy the time. But uh, you know, kind of getting back to the show here, uh, the big story happening right now in the NFL, and of course, we are a uh, Houston based podcast, so we are watching the NFL Combine. Uh, with keen eyes as we are trying to find, uh, hopefully, the franchise quarterback uh, for the team. But uh, the big story that actually happened on Saturday uh, was wide receiver from Washington, John Ross III, broke the 40-yard dash record. Do you have any guesses on what his time would be? Uh, somewhere hovering around four seconds, but, um, 4.22 seconds. That is unbelievable. I'm, I'm probably 422 seconds. In a 40 <laughs> dash. That's but did you see the crazy thing? Okay. So I, I don't know if you know this, but Adidas offered a private Island valued at around $1 million for any athlete that could break Chris Johnson's 40 yard dash record, which I believe was set in 2008. But the caveat was they had to be wearing Adidas cleats. And was he wearing Adidas cleats? He was wearing Nike cleats. Oh, man. My, it, Nike should do the right thing and step up and like do something great for that guy. Because that's, that's, unbe- I mean, like, that's unbelievable. I don't care who you are or where you're from, what cleats you're wearing, whether you're wearing cleats. That's amazing. So he, he signed a deal, I guess, with Nike just a, f- a few weeks back. And Nike sent out a tweet yesterday after he set the record saying, John Ross is on an island of his own. I mean, that's just like a little bit torture, right? Oh, a, a little bit. That's that's major torture. Um, w- here's my question. Would Adidas really follow through? Because there have been a lot of corporate like sponsorship, like, you know, deals like this that they made with people. And it never happens because the goal is, you know, unattainable. And here it happens. And I wonder if he had been wearing Adidas cleats, if Adidas would have followed through and bought him like 
you know, a sandbar like off the coast <laughs> of Galveston or whether they would have really like bought him something like off the coast of Fiji. I mean, I don't know if it was off the coast of Fiji, but the, the, the island is valued at a million dollars. And think of the marketing exposure that they would get. So, I mean, I think the value in itself in terms of marketing perspective is more than a million dollars. But the funny thing is John Ross actually said after setting the record and whether or not he was disappointed about not getting the island, his response was he couldn't swim. So (laughs) he was fine with not getting the island. Right. Okay. That works out. Yeah. So, uh, you know, good on John Ross for setting that record. Disappointed that he didn't get the island. But uh, notable absences from the, the NFL Combine this past week were Joe Mixon and Chad Kelly, who kind of ran into some legal issues. Uh, Mixon, of course, at Oklahoma was suspended, and we'll just call it suspended, even though it was actually a redshirt year at Oklahoma. And then Chad Kelly, who has had several legal issues, who's obviously the nephew of uh, Jim Kelly, the NFL Hall of Famer, uh, had a great kind of up-and-down, tumultuous season at Ole Miss, but he's got a lot of talent, a lot of upside neither of these guys were invited to the combine as a result of their off the field issues. Now the combine is a time for teams to evaluate players, not only on the field, but off the field to bring them into the interview room, ask them questions to find out if they've learned from their past to see if they know X's and O's to see if they can evaluate film to break down film. Is this an issue for the NFL, not giving these guys a chance And is it an issue and kind of a disadvantage for general managers and head coaches who might probably still draft these guys not to be able to have those one-on-one meetings with them? Yeah, actually, I so I have a a lot of mixed feelings about this whole thing. Also, it's a note that Ishmael Zamora uh, was also not invited to the combine for uh, the video of him beating his dog, which I was very happy to see um, him not invited for that. But in terms of Joe Mixon, I mean, I think good on the NFL for not inviting him. I think that they're doing the right thing despite what OU and the coaching staff at OU did for Joe Mixon, which is essentially, you know, kind of rent cover for him when all this was going on because the video evidence is pretty clear and convincing about what he did. Um, you know, here's, here's Joe Mixon kind of, you know, I'm really going to read a quote from him, but I mean, he was really forced into this position because I really haven't gotten that the guy's been too apologetic about what he did until uh, he was forced to be until right exactly he was forced to be uh i made a bad decision ever since that night i have i have to live with it i go i got to relive it every day you can never forget something like that I, it still haunts me to this day but it's what you do from that point on you can't take it back yada yada, yada. i mean that doesn't really sound like it, it sounds like it was written by a lawyer yeah it sounds like it was written by his attorney the guy got caught that's why he is upset that's why he's sorry he's not really sorry for what he did so and then he said, "I'm trying to educate you throughout the community and having them learn from my mistakes." What is that? I mean, every NFL player in history to ever ever get arrested makes some sort of vague, you know, generalizing platitude like that about how they want to use their mistakes to educate you. I don't think he's is earnest, but nonetheless, he probably will get drafted. But I do think it hurts his draft stock to not have some stats on a sheet of paper. Um, but I think that that's just what had to happen. Um, Chad Kelly, I didn't really have as much problem. If I mean, he you he's know, a guy that threatened to. He made a terroristic threat, and you know, yeah, his and he only like, he swung at some police officers. Yeah, and then he you threatened know. to blow up the place with you know an AK forty seven. So right. I mean, that's a terroristic threat, and you know, he wasn't charged with a felony, even though that could be a felony. No, I was like, what his lawyer argued that it was on the level of like what, like a like a uh, like a speeding ticket, right. basically, right? Yeah. So uh, it, Chad, Chad Kelly it strikes me as a kind of guy. He got drunk and got angry at a bar and swung at some guys that he shouldn't have swung at. He's a football player. He should be held to a higher standard. He's a public figure. But I don't consider his offense on the same level as Joe Mixon. Right. You know, it That's was fair. Because Joe Mixon, 
that incident and I think the way OU handled it sort of uh, it sheds light on sort of the, the culture of football and the greater problem that I feel like American sports have with the treatment of women. And we've talked about that a lot of times here on the podcast. Um, but I think it's a really good thing that neither of these guys were invited, but I think especially uh, Mixon. Yeah, and I, I I think the thing is, is Mixon is still going to get drafted, but it's going to be at a discount, I guess, for teams. You know, maybe he'll fall to like the fourth or fifth round, but he's a very, very talented player. I wouldn't want to see him in a Texans uniform. Oh, absolutely not. No, I and, and that's not that's not a, a knock against his talent or anything like that. I just you talent know, wise, yeah, right. I'd love him. Oh yeah, you know, talent talent wise, the guy. What you do for me off the field, right? Well, and it, you know, there are a lot of Texans that have had character issues over the years, but in general, I think the management of the Texans likes to keep. You know, one thing I know that they like to do is to keep it clean, and Mixon would <laughs> bring an air to that. Uh, you know, that he would he would bring a sense with which you know they kind of change gears on that policy. Yeah, and speaking of policy, I think that's a natural segue to what's happening in North Carolina. And, you know, we've talked about concussions. We've talked about head injuries multiple times on the show. Uh, North Carolina, they've got a bill in their house right now. It's House Bill 112. And uh, should it actually pass, it gives parents the power to decide if their concussed child can re-enter the game. Now, the previous, I, I guess the way the law is right now, uh, you have to have a qualified medical professional to approve that person going back into the game so i you know i think that's fine it makes sense like somebody that can make the decision on whether or not this person had a concussion but giving a parent the choice to let their kid go back into a game that's ridiculous right i think unless the kid's dad or mom is a doctor i don't think they should have that choice and that's just my personal opinion i work with adolescents i work with kids i i think that that's a you know, and we all know about the football dads, right? The football dads, the football moms, the kind of parents that get way too into the game. I can see this happening where, you know, uh, the kid gets concussed, the kid gets hurt, and mom and dad are so into the game that they're not thinking about the long-term consequences of potentially re-injuring the kid where they get concussed again. So I, I, I think this is a bad bill. I'm a big fan of parental choice, school choice. I think parents have a lot of rights that have been negated by... Uh, the school the, the school system and, and bureaucracies, but at the same time, this is just a bad idea. That it looks really bad on the outside in terms of like if you actually like, it look is. at the bill. Yeah, it's just, it just looks really bad from a PR perspective. It's um, like I, I don't the person who introduced it into the house. What were they thinking? I I don't know. I I, I guess so, somebody who doesn't really buy into. CTE or any of the stuff that's happening. I mean, what's what, what's so shocking about this is that we we have pretty clear and convincing evidence that head injuries have a profound effect on young adolescent developing brains more so than they do adult ones. It's not to say that they don't have effects on adult brains, but adolescents are particularly at risk for head injuries in terms of how they affect their later later development. And so I'm I'm just concerned that this is going to lead to a situation where. Um, you know, parents not really having the knowledge and the, um, you know, the foresight to think about the consequences of that. That's just, that's frightening. So I, I'm, I just, I can't, I can't imagine this. Pat, I hope the governor vetoes it if it makes it through. Yeah, I, I don't think it has any shot of making it through. And I think it's, that, that, that's not a PR stunt that you want to have to get recognition. So I, I hope that bill fails and I think it will fail. But, uh, you know, on the show a few times, we've had uh, some great writers from 
uh, The Ringer, which is Bill Simmons' venture through HBO. We've had, of course, Shay, Ser- Shay Serrano, who was on the show just a few weeks back. And then last year, we had Jason Concepcion, also known as Network on Twitter, on the show. Uh, but The Ringer this past week, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure you saw it. They released a list of the best fast food items in the United States. And I guess the way that they did this is, uh, you know, they had more than 100 nominees and the staff held a general election to find out what the best food, fast foods were. I mean, I I know we're from Texas, so obviously the best fast food is Whataburger, period. You know, whether it's a burger, whether it's honey honey butter, chicken biscuit, whatever. Whataburger only made one appearance on this list. To me, that's a travesty. That's a travesty, but it's honestly, you know, speaking of, we're talking about bad decisions, you know, bad bills, everything. I mean, everything on this list could be a bad decision at some point or another, especially the two tacos from Jack in the Box for 99 cents. Um, I'm surprised they're only at 19. The Wall Street Journal ran an article here a little while ago about how like 300 million, hundreds of millions of Jack in the Box tacos are consumed every year in the U.S. and no one knows why. I will They're tell not you why. good. I will tell you why. It, it is, um, it is uh, people, college kids, and young professionals that after having a few cocktails at happy hour get hungry, they see a Jack in the Box, and what do they think? They automatically think, I need 10 tacos from Jack in the Box. That is what happens. And literally, you know, on your third one, you know that you're going to regret everything that you're doing on your third one on your third one at least yeah because the first two you're not really thinking about it because they're tasty but they're terrible like when when you get the bag you see the grease dripping off of it i know i I, I don't think i've had one in gosh probably like 10 years i regretfully um last night i think i I might have woken (laughs) up in a pile of jack-in-the-box wrappers actually um no but i'm actually surprised they're only 19 on the list they they should be way farther down if only for public health reasons fair point and uh so they broke it down into you know there's searchable items on here so you can break it down from fries burgers chicken tacos and dessert uh number one item for fries uh chick-fil-a waffle fries i don't have a problem with that that was also the number one ranked overall fast food item i mean thoughts yeah actually no i I don't have a problem with them being number one though i do like i'm a big chicken sandwich fan so i would have liked to have seen the chick chick-fil-a chicken sandwich number one then maybe the waffle fries hitting it in number two but what what i find baffling is the fact that mcdonald's fries are number three on the list i mean it's good sales pitch they've been branding that for years yeah i mean mcdonald's is good but it's it's but it's like um I haven't been here in five years, and I already regret my decision to come back. Good, <laughs> you know, it's you, their their fries do not leave a good aftertaste. I feel like of all, well, I'd say Burger King is worse, but um, BK McDonald's, Lounge, yeah, they do have the BK Lounge. They, no, they do not deserve to be number three on this list. Yeah. Absolutely. So in terms of burgers, uh, the double double at In and Out was number one. Uh, McDonald's Big Mac actually checks in at number four. That to me is just baffling. But Whataburger is not in this list, and uh, Burger King is ahead. The Whopper uh, is ahead of the Whataburger sandwich. I, I just don't know that there was enough representation from texas and i know chase rana is from texas so maybe he was just outnumbered here but uh in terms of chicken uh popeyes was number one uh chick-fil-a was number two and three and four uh i you know i I don't see how popeyes got that list but tacos you had mentioned uh number one tacos come from taco bell number two jack in the box that to me sounds crazy uh best dessert blizzard from dairy queen you know texas forever frosty number two mcflurry from mcdonald's number three I don't know. I'm just really disappointed that Whataburger wasn't more on this list. Well, right. And I mean, uh, clearly, by virtue of the fact that the McFlurry machines at McDonald's are always down. No, like, don't take my word for it. Go out to your average McDonald's late, right? 
Ask for a McFlurry. They will tell you the machine is broken. It is. <laughs> it is a thing. It's actually. It got. It was like a news story, in like the the Washington Post and New York Times. Like, why is the McFlurry machine always broken? It is such a problem that national news media has taken, uh, taken an, you know an eye to it. So there's no way the McFlurry should be that far up. But um, anyways, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, clearly some bigoted food critics who who have not experienced the ecstasy that is Whataburger. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they, well, they we've have, probably they talked have, way too much about fast food. They have no, on this podcast already. I, I know, right? I, I'm I'm getting hungry for it right now. <laughs> no, but I they they clearly have never experienced it, and I'm really sad to not see it farther up. But whatever, this is one lift by the ringer. So yeah, absolutely. In Texas, it, we know better. It was it was good fodder, but uh, you know, one thing that actually stuck out to me this week, and again, we'll have uh, Jerry Hill and uh, Hunter Atkins joining us here in just a few moments on the podcast. But uh, SpaceX, Elon Musk, mul- you know, multi billionaire. He, he's you know, one of the, the guys that is really pushing the envelope in terms of privatizing space program here in the United States. And uh, SpaceX this past week announced that they were going to send two private citizens to navigate around the moon in 2018. Two exceptionally wealthy private citizens. I think this is amazing. Oh, this is definitely amazing. I think this is really the inaugural step in the private space race that has been going on really worldwide now for the last 25 years. Um, and it's going to be amazing to see this happen. Now, they're not landing on the moon. It's probably right. important to say that. They're just taking a long shot around the moon. But what's cool about it is if you're familiar with the Apollo program, of course, being from Houston here, I'm sort of a, a, a space nerd. I think I am, too. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, apparently, SpaceX is going to go a little bit farther away from the Earth than Apollo did, which is a big deal because, you know, being the far, you know, they'll, they, they might not hold that record for very long, but how, how would it, cool would it be for you to be able to say, I have been furthest away from Earth as any human has ever been, right? I mean, that's that's pretty incredible. So good on Elon Musk. I'm a huge fan of him. I think what he's doing is amazing. Um, of course, being in Houston, we have the Space Center, and we also have a spaceport coming to Brownsville, Texas, of all places. Uh, and, and Hobby cur- Airport, I And believe. courtesy, yeah, Ellington Field, her- courtesy of SpaceX. So really exciting stuff. Um, I'm just, I just wish them success because, as you all must know, space travel is a very dangerous venture. Right. There's a lot of hazards. So uh, I look forward to seeing it. Yeah, there was some speculation that uh, this mission could be pa- pushed back to 2019 so it would you know, coincide with the 50-year anniversary of actually landing on the moon back in 1969. But it's, it's projected to be a seven-day trip upon uh, you know one of the new capsules new rockets that spacex is testing actually they haven't tested it yet but i mean can you imagine seeing the sunrise from the other side of the moon and looking back at earth i mean to me that's just got to be phenomenal and i've got to ask you if you take away you know the, the price tag that it would be to you know go up there would you spend seven days with some complete stranger going around the moon I'd spend seven days with Donald Trump, of all people. I, I, I don't care who it is. Fair. I mean, I, I, if, if I had the opportunity, I wanted to be an astronaut as a little kid. Uh, you know, on my third math problem in the first grade, I figured I was probably not <laughs> going to, that was probably not going to happen. Not, not exactly a big math person. But no, I, I, I would take any opportunity that was thrown at me to, to venture into space, no matter the risk. It's, uh, it's a big deal. Now, what's curious is um, the fact that uh, I, I saw this question asked to a lot of people. And a lot of people said that they wouldn't do it. It was like half the respondents in the survey I saw said that they wouldn't go into space. And I guess they don't feel like it's safe. But I, I just I have that sense of adventure, and I think it'd be amazing. I'd also um, love to be, you know, the first guy to, uh, you know, meme space. I, I think uh, <laughs> <laughs> there would be all sorts of things that 
um, a silly flippant millennial could do in a space capsule for seven days. So uh, I'd like to see that happen. Yeah, it'd be a lot of fun. One of the names that I've heard uh, rumored to be one of those two that SpaceX is going to send out would be James Cameron. Uh, who obviously, uh, I guess, loves went, himself. Yeah, he was one of the guys that went, I, th- I think he's the person that has gone the furthest in the ocean. Uh, and so that'd be kind of cool for him to set two records uh, like that. But we'll see. SpaceX is doing a lot of great things. Uh, I, I, I love that you are privatizing uh, space industry. And I, I think it's going to be exciting to see what Elon Musk can do, not only with this project, but moving forward, whether or not we put somebody on you know, Mars, the moon, and uh, space travel moving forward. Speaking of privatization, uh, I'm a big fan of Uber. Yeah, and, crazy but, story this week from the yeah, New York Times. Yeah, I was say let's 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 delve into this a little bit deeper. Apparently, Uber was in, engaged in a little bit of corporate subterfuge uh, to uh, to elude the authorities when uh, their services were not exactly legal yet. Also, if you want to tell us a little bit, yeah. More. So they created this program called Grayball, which essentially used data collected from the Uber app uh, and some other techniques to identify and circumvent officials who were you know trying to clamp down on ride hailing services. So, for example, uh, in here in Houston. Uh, Uber started operating, I guess, illegally. They, they weren't approved and regulated by the city yet. In order to get away, around that, they created this, I guess, app, which essentially was created that if, if you were an authority, somebody that would ticket uh, an Uber driver, um, they had all of this information based on your phone records and location to know that, okay, you were probably a cop. So it, it you know kind of blackballed you or grayballed you, as this program is called. And it would send up ghost cars around you. So it essentially tried to fool you into thinking there were cars in the area when in actuality it was hiding the cars that were currently on the road so they could evade authorities. I mean, are are there like legal and ethical issues with this? Legal issues, yes. Yes, ethical issues, arguably no, because I'm a huge fan of Uber. I think it cuts down on drunk driving. I I think it cuts down on a lot of... Um, uh, I think people are alive today because of Uber. Now, you know, the, the issue of drivers and background checks aside, I think that they provide a vital service. And when I see cities go after um, a private enterprise like Uber that is operating mostly, you know, in a positive way, helping people out, um, I really get upset. The city of Austin did something here uh, when last, last year, year or two yeah. years ago to try to limit Uber services. And I believe and DWIs went up something like 30%. Yeah, yeah, no, this is, all, this, this is all about money and control for the city. If the city can't regulate it, the city can't control it and get some sort of cut of the money they don't want in their city. I think that's ridiculous. Um, my girlfriend actually was in a situation where they paid some guy just to drive them from a bar back to their house after Austin made it illegal. And it only can't come to find out when they got in the car and riding with the guy that he had been drinking. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So it was a really scary situation. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Uber. And so I, I honestly, I don't, you know, whenever a private company can fool the feds and fool the government when the government's doing something that I think is wrong, I, I think that's great. Now, legally, they might get in trouble for this. Of course, legal trouble is no stranger to Uber. But here, here's, here's really the question. From a citizen's point of view, do you really think that this is wrong? And I think it's, it's an interesting question to ask. I'm sure if Kevin were here, he'd have a very <laughs> strong opinion about this. But he's not. So, Austin, if you... I think, I think Kevin would probably endorse this. I think he would. 
Well, yeah, okay, because it's the cops. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, but <laughs> right. but but go ahead and check the story out. It's written by Mike Isaac. You can find it on the New York Times website, and uh, very fascinating. And uh, again, as mentioned uh, here in just a few moments, uh, Jerry Hill from the Baylor Bear Insider is going to be joining us on the podcast, and shortly after that, Hunter Atkins will stop by in studio, and both him and I talk Astros baseball and uh, Houston Rockets as they kind of make their uh, stretch run down toward the uh, the NBA playoffs. But uh, if you want to follow our work, you can search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. YouTube. Also, you can follow our website at weeklybrewcast.com. We post all the show rundowns there each week, and I uh, highly recommend that you subscribe. You'll get a notification sent to your email each time we post a new episode, so make sure to do that. But again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we've got uh, Jerry Hill from Baylor Bear Insider and Hunter Atkins joining us in studio here in just a few moments. So without further ado, it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is uh, a guy that has covered Baylor athletics for probably as long as I can remember and is the known as the Baylor Bear Insider, and that's Jerry Hill. Uh, Jerry, thanks for taking the time uh, out of your week and busy schedule covering uh, Baylor athletics and joining us this week on the show. Oh, no problem, Austin. Uh, good to visit with you guys. Uh, yeah, I, I have been covering Baylor athletics a little while. Um, started at the Trib in 83 and, and had the football beat since 87. So it's been a long ride for me. Yeah, and I remember, what was it, probably about seven or eight years ago is when you took over uh, the Baylor Bear Insider. What was that transition like from you, essentially going from somebody that was covering the team for a paper to moving in-house? Um, it, it was uh, it was a little different. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I'd spent 25 years at the, at the Waco newspaper and and got used to it, you know, doing it that way and, and covering, covering the teams, doing a lot of the same stuff that I, that I've done at Baylor, but uh, just with a little, maybe a little different perspective. Uh, obviously you got to know who your readers are and, and pri- primarily mine are the, you know, the Bear Foundation donors. Um, I do some stuff online, um, you know, that can be viewed by anybody, but a lot of my um, exclusive stuff goes just to the donor. So you have to you have to realize who you're who you're writing for and what they want to hear. So that's what I've kind of tried to do. Yeah, this is actually my ninth year at at Baylor, and uh, uh, you know, like I said, it's been a great ride. Uh, uh, but really enjoyed it. It was a good transition for me. It was a good time for me, and and obviously, you know, newspapers have struggled some. So it was it was a good move for me, Austin. Yeah, absolutely. And your son now works at Baylor as well. I mean, that's got to be pretty cool, right? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, that was just kind of a kind of a fluke deal i mean he he was actually working on his master's in 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 sports management uh at baylor but he was doing an internship uh with uh coach taff uh with the with the uh, coaches association and that job opened up and he you know jumped on it he had done some um kind of volunteer stuff for them and and uh was fortunate enough to land uh, a job in their athletic communications office and he does uh softball and and volleyball and equestrian and really enjoying it. He's out in California right now. So yeah, it's it's a fun time for for both of us. Yeah, California is not a bad place to be during the winter time, but <laughs> but Jerry, you know, kind of switching gears toward uh Baylor Athletics, you know, the fall was kind of a rough period for a, a lot of Baylor alum, you know, just with the fallout following uh, you know, the sexual assault scandal, uh, Art Briles leaving, uh, and then of course the transition with Jim Robe or Jim Grobe that was a difficult time for Baylor alums, but this spring it seems like the flip is almost, or the, the switch is almost flipped. I mean, you've got all athletic teams right now, pretty much ranked within the top twenty-five. I mean, success with both the men's and women's basketball program. Matt Rule obviously doing a great job with recruiting and you know laying his foundation here in Waco. 
What has the vibe been, I guess, from your perspective from the fall to what we see now in the spring? Yeah, I mean, you're right, Austin. I mean, the fall, you know, you, you were seeing it, um, it may, not as close as me, but I'm saying you you were seeing a lot of the same stuff I was seeing, and, and it was just tough. I mean, you went day to day, and you kept wondering, you know, what's next, what, you know, what, what, uh, what shoe is going to fall next, that kind of thing. And, and I think one of the biggest um, things to kind of change the momentum and everything was when uh, Coach Rule was hired, honestly. Um, and and, I, and I'm i one that, you know, when his name first came up, I was like, I don't even know who this guy is. A uh, guy from Temple, born in New Jersey. You know, how's he going to make it in Texas? But I tell you, the, since he first came in, I, I see nothing but great steps from him. He's, he's really energized that program. Um, I, I think he's definitely going to bring a discipline to that group. And, and uh, what he did in recruiting, I – you know, I covered recruiting for several years when I was at the Trib, and I just, it's mind boggling what he was, him and his staff were able to come in and do. So, you know, that kind of changed the momentum. Even the bowl game, you know, that was a positive way to end a very rough year. And then, you know, feeding into all the winter sports and stuff with basketball doing what they did and, and getting up to the men getting up to number one, uh, the women doing what they've done, um, it, you know, that. You know, obviously the momentum changed a lot there too, and and feeds right into the spring. And, and you know, Coach Rodriguez gets off to a uh, you know best start in, since like 1984 for baseball. So, and softball, you know, what they've done uh, to start the season, but then also beating three ranked teams out in California. So just a lot of good vibes going on right now. Both the tennis programs are doing well. Both the golf. I mean, there's just not really a down program right now. The the women's track team winning their first uh, conference championship ever. Um, and then, you know, obviously Kim Mulkey doing what she does with Lady Bear basketball. But, Scott, I, you know, I would not have said this at the beginning of the year, but I really think this might be his best team. It's not his best talent, but I think it's his best team. And, and for them to win 25 games and tie for second in the Big 12, uh, just a just a fun team to cover. Yeah, it absolutely is, Jerry. I, I, I kind of want to keep talking about Matt Rule here. I know that he's kind of had a, a rough transition, not not so much for him personally, but with all the stuff at Baylor that's still going on, you know, you still kind of have the Bryles, um, you know, scandal kind of still, you know, go, going on in, in some sense with, you know, the text messages that were released here and then Bryles releasing a letter here not too long ago within the last week or so how do you think rule and his staff and really athletic department has sort of handled the fallout from the 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 sort of lingering aspects of the scandal yeah and i i I didn't actually get to hear what he said uh but i know he was interviewed at the combine and handled it beautifully just from what i heard was you know his deal is a lot of changes have been made and they have i mean and, and kim and scott have said some of the same stuff that changes have been made you know in in procedure and all of that and and now you you just try to move on it's hard when you know stuff keeps getting brought up or you know like you said from this past week with the texas ranger investigation and coach bryles issuing a letter they're just it's like it won't it won't go away you're you're trying to move on and you're trying to take that next step but uh it just keeps getting you know dragged up and 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 brought up and and you really want to move on. And I think Coach Rule does a good job of that, that he focuses on what he can do. And there's really not anything he can do about what's happened in the past. 
what he can do. You know, he was he was brought in. His first interview was December seventh, so it's what he can do from from that day moving forward. And I, I think I think that's kind of how his approach is. I really can't handle. I, I really can't control all of that stuff that happened in the past. What I can do is make sure the same mistakes aren't made. And I think some of it, like I said, with some of the procedure changes that have been made, there already you know there's been a lot of good steps taken already. Not only that, but his staff that he brought in just is remarkable. I mean, so much NFL talent, uh, you know, it, it, it looks like, you know, he was the right man for the job. And I, I, know, I know that he said that, you know, it was his calling that him and his wife were having a discussion. I, I mean, could this could this potentially, I mean, I, I can't think of a better fit for with, between Matt Rule and Baylor. Yeah, and I, I it's, it's amazed me, and, and you, you mentioned the staff, uh, and it does have some NFL experience, certainly. But, I, you know, I think everybody, when, like I said, when, when he first, his name first came up, it's like, how is this guy going to be able to recruit Texas? And he brought a lot of guys with him from that Temple staff, including the whole defensive staff. But I thought, you know, the, the steps he took in hiring those Texas high school coaches, now granted, only one of them will actually be on the field staff, uh, but having Sean Bell back, having David Wetzel back, and having Joey McGuire that won three state championships at Cedar Hill, that was a huge get for all three of them to, to have some inroads into Texas recruits. And you've got to have that at Baylor. You've got to have that. I mean, if you're, if you're working in the state of Texas, you've got to have that. And, and so those were all home runs that he hit there. But you're right. He does have the NFL experience, too. Um, Jeff Nixon, who was his, actually his college uh, roommate, his high school teammate, um, he hired him from the 49ers. Uh, Big Nell that was just brought in, he, he was with the 49ers well. Both of them had right out, I think, 10 years' experience in the NFL. And a lot of the guys, I know Phil Snow has been on, in the NFL, George DeLeon, the offensive line coach. So I, I think it's a good mix of, of guys that, you know, have certain, you know, some great NFL background but also those Texas ties, I think that was a big lick to get those guys. You know, and Jerry, certainly uh, I hope that Coach Rule can string it all together here this next season. You know, spring ball is right around the corner, and I guess from a fan's perspective, you know, we're sort of used to Baylor, um, you know, having a lot of wins in the fall, and, you you know, looking at pretty good seasons, at least, you know, if you're looking at the past couple of years here. What can Baylor fans expect from uh, this coaching staff and this team to be a successful year heading into the, the fall season? You know, I don't know if there's a number. I think certainly you want to keep the bowl streak alive. Uh, you know, they've been seven straight years. I think you'd like to get back to a bowl game and, and you know, just, um, you know, be competitive in all the games. I, you know, they, they, they've taken some hits. Uh, you know, they're, they're, there's enough losses with, like, the receivers gone that, you know, maybe you do have a little bit of a dip. I mean, you know, um, with, with losing Katie Cannon, Ishmael Zamora, I mean, that's a big hit. A good bit of the defense is back, though, so I think, you know, that, that side could actually be better. And like I said, with a Temple staff that, you know, that, that uh, Temple football program was ranked third in the nation last year in total defense. So I think having those guys in and, and mixing them in with the talent coming back. And then on the offensive side, I mean, you know, obviously it'll, there'll be a competition at quarterback in the spring, and I think that's a good thing. Anu Solomon, uh, that transferred from Arizona, and, and uh, Zach Smith, that uh, I thought he did a great job, particularly in the bowl game. But even even when he was able to get in there and, and, and the three starts that he had before that, um, he certainly didn't light it up, but, you know, he looked good for a true freshman quarterback, and, and certainly he'll be better. So I think, you know, having both of those guys compete in the spring 
And then there's a lot of talent. I mean, you look around the offense. I mean, I think there's three or four starters come back in the offensive line. You've got both Terrence Williams and Jamichael Hasty back in the in the backfield. So, I mean, there's a lot of weapons left. And, and like I said, most of your defense is back. So I, I don't know if there's a specific number that I would – you know, project or look at, but I, I think, you know, it's certainly a team that's capable of eight or nine wins, maybe more, depending on, you know, the kind of the early season success, get on a little bit of a roll and let's see what happens. Yeah, definitely looking forward to uh, football returning in the fall. I mean, we are a football crazy state. And so I think uh, it, there are two seasons, it's spring football and then the regular season. But but I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't discuss, you know, the two teams right now that are heading into March Madness with high expectations. And specifically, I, I you know, I kind of want to focus on Scott Drew and the job that he's done with the Baylor men's basketball team this year. I mean, it, it's just remarkable. You alluded to it earlier that this is potentially the best team in terms of chemistry. But this is also a team that started the season unranked and has been ranked in the top 10, you know, the, the better part of the last two months. How did all of this happen when expectations weren't there at the beginning of the season? Well, and Austin, I think some of it was the expect lower expectations came from who you lost. You lost Torian Prince, who was actually a lottery pick in the NBA. You lost Rico Gathers, who was actually picked uh, in the NFL by the Dallas Cowboys and lined up on their practice roster. And you lost your starting point guard, Lester Medford. So I think outside, particularly, the expectations were low because of what you lost. At the same time, what you had coming in or what you had sitting out, um, you had Amanu LeCompte, who had started at Miami, had great numbers at Miami. So you knew he was – and I kept hearing, this is actually going to be an upgrade at point guard. Um, so you had him coming in. Um, and then you had Joe Lualaquil. And, they, you know, that was a guy that had medical, had medical issues last year and wasn't able to play. And, and so you weren't quite sure what you were going to get with him. And, and I think – you know, you thought maybe he would be a decent player. He led the Big 12 in blocks um, and was on the all-Big 12 defensive team. So I don't know that you expected that out of him, but you expected him to at least contribute. Uh, Nuni Omat, who w- didn't even play in the fall until December, um, had some transfer issues or, or eligibility issues that uh, weren't clear- cleared up until after the semester was over. And But, uh, you know, he jumped in, and he's helped out big time in some games. And then Chuck Mitchell, um, is a guy that, you know, he's a red shirt again. That, that's one of the things Scott's done that I, I look around the nation. I don't see a lot of programs doing that, being able to red shirt guys and then, you know, get them to produce later on. Uh, did it with Corey Jefferson actually in his second year. Um, but this group with Jonathan Motley, the red shirted, uh, his freshman year is a fourth year junior that might be, you know, a first round pick, maybe even a lottery pick. Um, and then you've got Al Freeman that had red shirted early on too. So, I think that was part of the deal is people just didn't know what they had. I thought it was an NCAA tournament team. I I did not see a top 10 team. But I think just the way that they play, and, you know, it's a cliche, but, uh, you know, and I know it was kind of one of them that uh, Mac Rhodes adopted when he came in as the athletic director. Um, And and I know it's a quote. I I can't remember who said this, but it's like uh, when, when you don't care who gets the credit, you know, you can have great success. And that's the way it's been with this men's basketball team. Certainly Motley has had great numbers. He's played unbelievable. But it's just everybody on that whole team. I mean, I saw Jake Lindsay have a great game down at Austin, 16 points, four assists, one turnover. Um, you know, just different guys stepping up. King McClure didn't give him a whole lot uh, until here lately, but he's stepped up in, in, in some big ways. So uh, Ishmael Wainwright is, is kind of the soul of the team. He's the only senior on the team. 
Um, but he he's one of those guys, you know, he fills up the stat sheet. And, again, he's one that, you know, doesn't worry about who gets credit or if he gets enough shots up, that kind of thing. He just goes out and plays. And so I think that's it's been the collection of the whole team. It's not one individual guy. And that's how they play. And that's why they're sitting here 25-6 and six and, and potential, you know, two-seed in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, and Jerry, kind of on the subject of Jonathan Motley, I mean, what an incredible player, kind of an unexpected player as a casual fan looking at the team. What do you think uh, his season has meant to this team? And I, I guess as a fan, I'm, I'm sort of wondering where he lands heading into the future here. Yeah, I mean, he's he's been unbelievable. Like I said, I think you thought he might make a jump this year. You know, he, he had played, you know, well the first couple of years. He, you thought he would maybe take a jump with, with Rico and Tori and not here now. But uh I don't. I don't know that anybody could have imagined. You know, eighteen and ten. You know, eighteen points, ten rebounds every game. Um, but you know, been a phenomenal player, first team All Big Twelve, um, National Player of the Year candidate. So, uh, you know, I think every team needs that kind of you know inside presence. And and the, and this is this is one of the things that I give Coach Drew credit for too. That Jake Lindsay talked about the other the other day was ability to adapt. I mean, Austin, if you go back to the early earlier days, he, he did it all with guards. Right. Um, had, you know, four guard lineups. Um, now he's doing it with two, you know, kind of two bigs, two classic bigs, uh, and, and working through them. Um, but you still have some good guard play. So, yeah, I think I think uh, Jonathan, you know, what he's done is, has been huge for the team, but it also helps those guards. When, when you have that much of an inside presence in there, um, you know, the guards are not going to be defended like they would be if you didn't have that presence in there. I, I, I suspect he'll be gone after this year. That's my that, that would be my best guess. I just, you know, and again, he's a fourth year player. He's not, you know, he's not a third year junior. He's a fourth year junior. So uh, I, I liken it to Corey Coleman when he went out. I, I it was the right decision because he was a fourth year guy. Um, it's like, what, what's he going to do, you know, when he comes back? I mean, would Baylor take him back? Heck yeah. I mean, Baylor could be a great team with him next year, but I just think he's, he's probably gone and, and, and probably, you know, should be a first round pick. One of the terms that we hear a lot in college basketball is glue guy. And I don't know that there is anyone better than a glue guy than Ish Wainwright and just what he's done. Uh, he's the only senior on this year's team. And I, I don't know that this is a fair comparison because, you know, Shane Battier was, uh, you know, All-American at Duke and had a great career with the Miami Heat and Houston Rockets. But Ish reminds me a lot of Shane Battier in the sense that they were, uh, you know, dream players for analytical gurus. And I think what Ish provides you on the court has just been phenomenal. How important is he to the success and overall chemistry of this year's team? Well, I think it's huge. And and like you said, he's the only senior. And when your senior is that type of player, um, then the other team feeds off of that. And when your only senior is a very unselfish guy that, you know, is willing to do anything for the team and he, you know, he rebounds, he, he passes, he's a great passer. Um, he goes in and rebounds. Uh, he just does it all. And, and that's, that's what Ish brings you. And, and like I said, he's one of the guys that, I think more than anything, he's that guy that I don't care who gets the credit. I just want to win. I want to do whatever I can for the team. And you're right. I think he's the ultimate glue guy for this team. Um, you know, is is he the most talented? Is he, is he, you know, one of the greatest players in Baylor history? No. But, you know, if this team goes really far, it's probably going to be because of Ishmael Wainwright. Um, he, he's not going to score, you know, 15, 20 points a game. I think he's capable of that if, if you just let him go. 
But he, that's not what he's going to do. He's going to do all the other things that help you win games. Yeah, and he was the one that came up with the, the motto, we still suck, earlier this year. And this team has always played with like a chip on their shoulder, it seems. And Sunday afternoon when the Big 12 announced their coach of the year, it obviously went to Bill Self at KU. And again, Kansas is probably going to be number one seed heading into the tournament. Does that add a little bit more of a chip to this team's shoulder, knowing that Scott Drew didn't get that award despite taking this team from unranked to top 10 throughout mostly the entire season. Yeah. And, and those are tough. I mean, any kind of postseason awards like that. And it was, it was the same way on the women's side. I mean, Texas won like all of the major, I think four of the six major awards and, and, and Baylor didn't get a lot. Um, same, same way on the men's side. And certainly I think it will motivate the players. I don't know that it motivates Scott uh, uh, even a little bit. Um, I, I think he certainly deserved it because, like you said, based on preseason project, projections, and I think they were picked fifth in the Big 12, fifth or sixth in the Big 12, uh, and, and zero points in the first polls. And for a team, for him to take a team like that, and that at one point was number one and has been in the top 10 for most of the year, um, unbelievable. Uh, I, I think he's coached the, and, you know, Nish. And uh, Jake Lindsay both talked about that the other day when we did media. Is he he is the coach of the year in their eyes? He is the coach of the year. So I could see them kind of using it as a motivation. Again, I don't think for Scott that that will be the motivating factor in him at the Big Twelve tournament. I think it just it might like you know motivate the players, but I don't think it really does much for Scott. Of course, and we've got the Big 12 tournament coming up here with Baylor playing a very capable Kansas State team. But switching gears a little bit and looking towards the big dance here in March, um, or a little later on in March, I'm kind of curious. You know, Baylor is kind of disappointed the last two years. I say kind of disappointed. They lost to Yale last year by four points in the first round. Is this the kind of team we can expect to perform a little bit better in the tournament given the talent and the organization of the team? Yeah, and I think the biggest deal is the depth on this team. I, I don't know that they're, you know, again, I don't, I don't know if, if it's the most talented team, but I think it's definitely the deepest team that Scott has had. And I think that depth may keep you from having one of those first-round lapses that, that, that they've had the last couple of years against Georgia State and then against Yale. So I, I think that one thing, because, you know, if a guy is struggling or, you know, if a guy's just having a little bit of an off night, you know, he's going to put Jake Lindsay in there. He's going to put Chuck Mitchell in there. He's going to put Nunez Ahmad in there. And, and they're not going to drop off. I mean, if anything, they might get a little bit of lift from those guys coming in. So um, I think that's – and certainly they're motivated. They were motivated last year. They didn't want to lose last year. But I think um, even more, particularly, again, feeding off your own only senior, I, I think Ish doesn't want to go out like that. Ish wants to go out, you know, with – going to the final four and winning a national championship that's that's his goal that's that's a lot of these guys go they want they want to get to phoenix and that's that's their mindset certainly you want to get past that first game but i, I think their mindset is hey let's see how far we can go with this they want to win they want to make history and that includes winning the big 12 tournament this this next week yeah, I think uh, the goal for both teams right now is for the men to head to Phoenix and the women to get to Dallas for the Final Four. Uh, it looks like the the Baylor you know women's team is probably going to be the number two overall seed behind uh, UConn. What is the ceiling for this team? Can they compete with UConn? I know they lost to them earlier this year in Connecticut. Is this a team that can knock off Gina Ariema? I think they're a much better team right now than when they and, – and again, they played them on the road. Uh, and that was actually the first time – 
that they had played them in stores. They had played them in Hartford before, but they had never actually played them in in stores there on campus. So, um, and it was a tie ball game with like five or six minutes to go. So they know that they can compete with UConn, and they're a much better team than they were back in November. Um, the only question is uh, with Alexis Jones. Uh, she has not played the last four or five games with a with a bruised knee, and and but they've played really well without her. Um, they, they blew out uh, Oklahoma, a 19th ranked team, on the road by 39 points. Um, so I mean, and and they've you know had pretty pretty easy time so far in the Big 12 tournament. So I, I think it's a team that's certainly capable of making a deep run, getting to the tournament. And I think if they get a shot, and particularly if they're at full strength, if Alexis Jones is playing and the rest of the team is all healthy, I, I think they've got as good a shot or a better shot than anybody else to beat UConn. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Um, you know, the, the Big 12, uh, Baylor women actually playing in the, for the Big 12 championship on uh, Monday. And then, of course, the men start uh, this week with a game against Kansas State. Uh, but if you want to follow... Uh, you know, pretty much anything around Baylor athletics, I highly recommend following uh, Jerry Hill on Twitter and you can check, check him out on his Twitter page and that's view from Hill. And uh, Jerry, for those that are uh, kind of interested in reading your work a little bit more, I, I know that you said that some of the stuff was on BaylorBears.com, but uh, if they're interested in getting those daily newsletters, what is the best way for them to find that? Uh, you can go online at uh, BaylorBearFoundation.com or through BaylorBears.com. There's a link on uh, link to the Baylor Bear Foundation. You can certainly join up there, or you can uh, call the office. And uh, uh, pretty easy to get enrolled. And uh, we're, I think we're up around eight or nine thousand members now. But uh, we'll certainly be uh, welcome to having a few more join on board. And and you get you get the daily emails if you if you join at a high enough level. You get a magazine that we put out every uh, five or put out five times a year. So. Uh, would love to get even more membership, uh, people interested in Baylor athletics. And, and yeah, like you said, I'm, I'm doing more and more online. So you can read a lot of my game stories and previews at BaylorBears.com. Yeah, I definitely enjoy the, uh, the daily newsletters as they come into my inbox uh, probably each afternoon. But, uh, Jerry, it's been an absolute blast having you on the podcast this week. And uh, enjoy uh, the Big 12 championship game tomorrow and also uh, the Big 12 tournament up in uh, Kansas City this week. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. I enjoyed this. This was a lot of fun. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Now, joining us in studio here in Houston, Texas, before he heads off to Florida and covering the Houston Astros for spring training is the one and only Hunter Atkins at hatkins 35 on Twitter. Did I get that right, or is it Hunter no, Atkins totally 35? Wrong. I've plugged uh, it the last two weeks on the show. <laughs> That's very generous of you. No, uh, it is Hunter Atkins 35. Uh, that's how you can find me on Twitter. Also, I know that you're very jealous because I have uh, the job you always wanted, right? Covering spring training. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that I've wanted to do since I was a little kid. You're a fool. It is not all that's cracked up to be, I promise okay, you. Okay, how about this? I think since a little kid, I always wanted to go to spring training. Not necessarily work, but to go to the actual event. I'll try to, I'll try to get a plus one. Okay. All right. Sweet. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to have you in studio. Uh, it's been a few weeks. Uh, what have you been up to, man? Oh, you know, just twiddling my thumbs, pretending I work for a living. Uh, no, uh, working on some fun stuff. There's a story that I have out right now that people can check out about Team Israel in the World Baseball Classic. Uh, the story's about how they almost got Alex Bregman to play. Uh, I won't spoil how that unfolded, but um, basically, in the end, the message is that he missed out on a lot of fun. It ends up being a pretty uh, interesting story about how that team came together through a trip to Jerusalem. So pretty cool. 
So how does that work? I mean, of course, we've got the World Baseball Classic coming up. There are, I believe, what, six, seven members of the Astros that are playing for their respective countries. Uh, Team Israel, they're able to recruit a lot of athletes because of you know Jewish heritage. And they've got these awesome shirts that I've seen going around on social media saying the Jew crew. I mean, just so much fun. Uh, how important is it for Israel, I guess, embracing baseball? Is that a country that embraces baseball? Or are they playing more on you know the Jewish heritage throughout the United States? It, so baseball is really new there. They just started having organized baseball as recently as a decade ago. And a big part of the story is that a few guys in the team, right, I just said before, they go, to, they go to Israel. They go to Jerusalem. They go to a groundbreaking ceremony of a baseball field in front of hundreds of kids. Um, the country is really like, teeming about baseball, but it's just really new. Uh, in terms of, you said something funny before. You said, oh, like, you know, the team must recruit a ton of guys because of Jewish heritage. A big part of my story is about how um, a shot in the dark a lot of the recruitment is. The way that this guy recruits players is he looks for Jewish last names. A really? Of, yeah, because a lot of guys don't real in baseball. First of all, there are very, there are very few, relatively few, Jewish baseball players in professional baseball. Let's just, like, put that out there. They also don't realize that they can just play for Team Israel because of it. Like, it doesn't occur to these guys. A lot of them didn't even know Team Israel existed. So, um, like, it's cute that there's this shirt going around, and it's nice that this team has come together. But that is a special story. That's not common, Um, you know, just because of how new everything is. Yeah, they've actually got a tough bracket. They're going to be opening up play uh, March 6th through 10th in Seoul. Uh, They've got uh, Chinese Taipei, Israel, the Netherlands, and Korea in that bracket. And of course, the winner, I guess the top two teams in that bracket will move on to Tokyo March 12th through 16th. And I guess uh, Japan will probably, Japan and Cuba will probably be the favorites coming out of that uh, bracket for World Baseball Classic. But I was actually reading an article a few weeks ago. It was discussing Clinton Kershaw. And uh, is he the greatest Dodgers pitcher yet? And the you know the article said i believe it was richard justice who wrote this said that you know he's getting to the point where you can start legitimately comparing him to sandy koufax and you mentioned jewish baseball players and uh, sandy koufax so naturally we picked a catholic or a christian baptist uh, <laughs> lefty as well to compare him with right but i mean uh, sandy koufax i mean he's got to be the greatest jewish baseball player <laughs> of all time right i mean are we uh, Am, am I right? Is Muggsy Bogues the greatest <laughs> five foot four basketball player? Well, of all speaking time? of short guys, I think that's a nice segue <laughs> to uh, the Rockets, real quick. <laughs> uh, it, we are recording right now, Thursday afternoon, and uh, of course, you'll be listening to this podcast Sunday night or Monday. Uh, but Wednesday night, the Rockets played uh, the Clippers, and another short guy for basketball standards, Patrick Beverly, just went off. Twelve rebounds, fourteen points. He was what more than fifty percent from the three point line phenomenal game how important is he to the Rockets' success this year great i mean there, there were all kinds of stats about how I, I can't roll them off the top of my head but you know like when he came back from injury right that's when the team turned around like it, you know he's the pivotal point of their defense right so uh, he's i mean you brought up you know his stat his uh his offensive stats but the truth is that that's not that's not a big a deal this team shoots you know a bazillion threes yeah so it's a little more coincidental that he played nicely on offense yesterday. But, you know, your question about how important he is, yeah, he's essential. Um, especially when I'm sure we're going to get into talking about the Rockets matching up against the Warriors now, right? Yeah, and kind of big news this week. We Kind of. Kind of. Okay, huge news this week. Of course, the Warriors have the best record in the West. Uh, heavy favorites to, to win the title this year. Kevin Durant, 
arguably the best player in the game of basketball. I love that you called it, as Michael Jordan calls it, the game of basketball. <laughs> that's, how he's, that's what he said. I love that phrase. Well, I would have said the beautiful game, but I think that's trademarked. So, uh, but Kevin Durant goes down with a, uh, a, a knee injury that could potentially keep him out up to eight weeks. I mean, is this a game changer? I mean, we saw last year yes. Steph Curry. Yes. Steph Curry yes. had that injury. I don't think the Warriors were the same. No. Yeah, it's huge. Are the Warriors still the favorites without Durant? Yes. However, you know, the Rockets matched up with them better than any team in the NBA. Right. And getting rid of Durant. You know, Durant was the worst matchup for the, the Rockets, right? Last time, I think he scored 32 points, something like that, whenever they played last. Getting that guy off the court, I mean, like, it's a huge boost of confidence to the Rockets, right? If the Rockets thought they had a puncher's chance before, I mean, now it's way more legitimate. I still think the Warriors are the favorite, but I wouldn't call them the heavy favorite. I mean, what, you know, what, what's fun is that, I was thinking about this today, that D'Antoni still is experimenting, which is great, right? Like, you think about a guy who has always, I, I don't know, I mean, he wouldn't, he wouldn't say this, but we would, you know, like, he's prided himself on being a luminary, right? A big risk taker. More shots, more passes, more everything. And still, they are attempting to move even faster, to put up even more shots. And why is that? Well, he's going to be the first guy to look at the Warriors and say, well, you want to play this way? We're going to try to outdo you in your own game. When you look at the box score from the Clippers the other night, they only attempted four shots from the mid-range. Of course, they were over four. Uh, but, you know, they put up, what, 123 points, set an NBA record, or tied an NBA record for three-pointers in the third quarter before going, like, over 10 in the fourth. When this team's hitting, with the addition of Lou Williams, what is the ceiling for this team? Is it an actual pushing the Warriors in the Western Conference? I mean, can this team... No, they can win. They can can win. It can happen. Look, I I mean, I I still want to be clear. Right. The Warriors' best team, the Warriors are favorited, right? Do you get the Spurs the edge over the Rockets? No. Okay. Oh, no. No, no, no. Like, I just, you know... The Rockets, we we actually still haven't quite seen their full potential. And that's the scary thing. Right. What, and what do I mean by that? Right. Like, okay. So Lou Williams in the four games he's played, two of them, in two of them, he's had more than 20 points. Right. In two of them, he's had fewer than 20 points. He actually had a really bad game against the, late, uh, the Clippers. But um, when you, 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 you said, like, when he's firing all cylinders, right? Like, yeah, that's another, you know, him, Anderson, Gordon, Harden, even Ariza and Beverly chipping in. It's enough firepower, is, is my point. And over a seven-game series, yeah, they could win four of the three. It could definitely... It's certainly more plausible now with the Durant injury. And, and, and let me say, he probably is going to come back for that series. Right. But that's, but that's okay, because it's still a complication, right? How is he going to adjust? Right? The team's going to presumably be fine without him, but it's also going to squeeze him you know, out of the rotation, obviously. He'll have to figure out how to fit back in when he comes back. Like Any, any little misstep... Right, is all the Rockets need to win in the 120s and the 130s. Like that's going to be their game plan. So, um, I think that even more than the Cavs, the Rockets have the best chance of beating the Warriors this year. Gosh, it's it's so exciting just to think about 
how far this team has come, how much we've seen James Harden's game develop this year. I mean, he's he's had seven assists at least in every single game. I think moving him to point guard has just been uh, so much fun to watch this season. But to see last year, they finished regular season with 41 wins, and they've already eclipsed that. I predicted them for four, I, just want, I just want to be clear. I predicted them for 43 wins. 43 wins? Okay. Yeah, I, was, I think they're going to hit the over. <laughs> <laughs> when No, when, uh, when we were talking at the start, right before the start of the season, I think that you know we were talking about the expectations for this team, and I was crapping all over them. I think we all were. Well, probably not as much as you. Yeah, for sure. I was definitely a dump fest. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> all right. So one thing that I do want to you know mention, I saw a tweet Wednesday night, and I, I believe it was I'm Sean. So Pen- excited for I, I believe it was Sean Pendergast from Sports Radio Six Ten. We've had on, on the show a few times and. I think he said something to the effect of the floor for the Rockets is much lower than the other contenders in the West. And I think the contenders that he was referring to were the Spurs and the Warriors. Maybe this was a retweet, uh, but he said that the ceiling and what that offense can do with as many playmakers as they have maybe is a little bit higher than the Warriors. This sounds totally you, meaningless. What that? does this mean? Do you, I, mean, I, mean just I don't showing, even know what it means. Just showing the team's potential, raw well, potential. But that he, also, he said they could be the worst team or the best team. He said nothing. Or worse at the bottom three. Or, I mean, worse at the top this three. Is a, this is pointless. Fair point. Fair like, point. Uh, th- it means nothing. Dude, but just think I, about the, I think what he was trying to say is the team is flawed in, in some sense. I mean, we look at rebounding, for example. If, if they're not hitting yeah, their shots. Rebounding a defense. They haven't... Tr- okay. It hasn't been is, is that a concern over the next 20 games? Or do you just... When times are good, you ride it and let the threes Look, keep on falling. Tony's always, always been like that. Yeah, put up shots, make shots, you win. Right, the best defense is the best offense. It's not going to change. And by the way, you know this Willy Wonka vision he's always had. He's never had so many awesome pieces to play with. You know, like he's never had a player like Durant. I'm so, he's, true, Durant. <laughs> Sorry, Harden. He's never had a player like James Harden. Yeah, but it's not just him. Like, I mean. All right, so when we uh, again, I'm, I'm I'm happy to call myself out and hang myself out to dry. Like I thought, Ryan Anderson was a huge mistake, right? Not only for health, but I still I'm certain his defense is an enormous liability. However, he's shooting even far better than I expected. Especially, you know, like it's not just that he's he's making so many threes, but that and John Jonathan Fagan, the Houston Chronicle Rockets beat writer, had a great point about this about how having Ryan Anderson and Eric Gordon be able to hit threes from such far distance opens up the court even more, right? Uh, and Lee Jenkins had a Sports Illustrated story this week about it. it but my point is just that like these guys, and Lou Williams too, like their unlimited range, their incredible ability to score and shoot. Like the, the biggest worry that people, or the biggest knock on this team in terms of their chances with the Warriors, it actually wasn't, oh, well, their defense is going to be too bad. They're not going to be bad. Everybody already knows that. The team basically accepts that. Right. It's the question of, can they do it? Can they sh- can they outshoot and outscore the Warriors four out of seven times? Right? Can their shooting hold up? Well, shoot! If you have a bad night from Anderson, you have a bad night from Gordon. You got Lou Williams. Lou Williams can win this team like a game, right? He can have a hot fourth quarter. You know, let's assume Harden's going to be great. Fine, but um, these other pieces. It was a brilliant addition by Maury. Yeah, I, I love that move. I think uh, in the interview, uh, Daryl Maury this past week, I believe it was on Sirius XM. Uh, said something to the effect of, you know, we didn't get a guy down low. I mean, our goal is we understand that the Warriors are such a good offensive team that as simple as it sounds, we have to be able to outscore them, score 120, 130 points to win. 
Lou Williams gives you that chance. Yeah, they want a Bogut, which would have been nice, but that's okay. Yeah, he's signed with Cleveland. Which is awesome. It's very Shakespearean. Yeah, when asked about it, he said, I've heard Cleveland is nice this time of year. I don't, I don't know that well, anyone's ever said that. Yeah, He's hilarious. Yeah. And a total, you know, ass How much do you think the Warriors miss him? I mean, because with Durant going down, you've got Bogut out. You don't have Harrison Barnes this year. It's depth an issue? I mean, I, I I know you still have you no, know, no, yeah, like that's the Draymond big, and the Splash that's Brothers. That's the biggest hot take this week has been that. Also, oh. that terrible take about oh my gosh, Durant's MRI happened on three one. Is that a sign? That was funny though. I like that. It no, got that old hilarious. after I I saw it for like eight straight hours. I was gonna say it got old after a minute, but yeah, no, <laughs> um, no. The biggest hot take this week has been that oh, you know, they're gonna they really miss Bogut now and uh, blah, blah blah. It's like, dude, they. <laughs> they have Kevin Durant, right? And Bogut, it's not like, it's, it's it's not not like, like he was playing all the time. Right. But, but the, the dude has like four great minutes in a game, right? right? And we think, oh, you know, now the Warriors are so flawed and fallible without him. I mean, the, Durant was playing amazingly on defense. And you don't go into a season planning for somebody to get hurt, right? Like, it's fine. I also don't think they have a depth issue. If, any, if anything... It, I don't think it's an a depth issue. I just think that maybe guys like Andre Godala, right? Guys maybe a step slower, maybe a bit weaker. But come the finals, like the, they the, can step it up. Yeah, they'll be good. You know, and I think a lot of the reason why last year they ran out of gas, by the way, is because you know Curry misses a misses time with the injury, has trouble adjusting. They go on, you know, they, they chase the wins record, so they get tired. But Curry's done a much better job this year, right? I mean. I don't think it's that big of a deal. It's not. It, let's not make it so complicated. It's not about defense. It's not about depth. It's not about rebounding. It's a shootout. It's about having fun, going out there and doing what you love best. There was actually a remark, uh, James Harden saying that he wanted to play all 82 games this year. And uh, I believe on ESPN, the, the commentary behind it was, you know, you don't see that all the time because you see a lot of those players, you know, taking the days off. And Harden's response was he knows that he can't play the game of basketball forever. And he loves the game, wants to play it as much as he can while he's in his prime. And that brings me to just a few nights ago when he was on Jimmy Kimmel's show. And, and Jimmy Kimmel made some remarks uh, you know, suggesting that he had a conversation with Kobe Bryant, and Kobe Bryant said that if he could start and build a franchise around one player, that would be James Harden. One of the things that we've kind of tossed around on the show, and, and, and stop me if I've already asked you this on the show, but if you could start a franchise right now with Westbrook, Durant, or Harden, who do you pick and why? I pick Giannis. That's a good D answer, the Greek freak. Yeah, I pick him. Fair point. Over, even even despite the season that yeah. Harden's having right now? Well, your criteria is like ludicrous, right? It's, it's who could I start a franchise with? Well, I'll start a franchise with the guy that's the youngest, that's almost as good, that's the cheapest, that still has room to grow. So it's a preposterous premise. Okay, fair point. He's also a physical freak. And uh, uh, definitely a lot of excitement for the Rockets as we gear up uh, through the home stretch, through March, as we gear up for the, uh, the playoffs beginning in April. And hopefully we'll be able to... Uh, uh, discuss the Rockets in late May and early June as they make a run toward the NBA championship. But uh, w- a few weeks ago on the show, we had somebody submit a question asking which team was primed to win a championship first within the city of Houston. And my response was the Astros, uh, simply because I thought the Warriors were too good this year. And this is before Kevin Durant obviously goes down with the injury. And so if I had to readjust, I might suggest that the Rockets could win that championship. But I don't, I don't know much about the Dynamo and the Dash, but... I might pick one I, of them. I, I might pick I, one of them. First. I discussed the big sports. It was just the big three. Um, oh. Yeah. Um, 
But my question for you is spring training approaching. You're heading down to Florida. Tell our listeners what they can expect from you covering. Oh, very little. Have very low expectations. Don't check it. Yeah, I'll be, you know, I'll be busy swimming and tanning and, you know, asking AJ Hinch every single day. Well, what'd you think of this pitcher? Well, what'd you think of this pitcher? Were you satisfied with his stuff? Oh, we had good stuff? Great. No, spring training, you know, <laughs> it's baseball nuts like you. Yeah, that guilty. The news cycle of spring, of spring training so voracious because the only thing that matters in spring training is get through it without injuries, right? That's everything. And already, by the way, we're seeing injuries. Yeah. Well, I was just not saying, not for the Astros. Yes, specifically. yes, with the Astros, dude. So Colin McHugh has dead arm. Okay, we can say, well, oh, that's not that big a deal. Okay, this is also a. Guy it's a big that, deal when he's your third starter. I was about to. I was just about to say, you know, the story of this pitching staff. It's a small sample size, but <clears throat> just the last two seasons was great promise, disappointment, right? And the disappointment last season, I have to say, felt much more like the norm for these guys than the season before, right? right. Whether it's McCullers injury prone, you know. Keichel Cole. having injury issues and not telling anyone. Yeah, I mean, I, at the same time, you know, that Cy Young season might be an aberration, right? Well, he had a you great know? year the year prior. It wasn't quite Cy Young caliber, but... But, okay, let, let me put it this way. He doesn't have stuff that's going to blow you I away. I was just about to say, right? You know, like, everything for him is movement and accuracy, and those guys have such a s- smaller margin for error than the guys that throw hard, right? So if you're going to have a Cy Young season with stuff like that, I mean, you have to be really precise, that kind of precision is very, very difficult to have year after year after year. It's much easier to blow it by guys for a three to four to five year stretch as a pitcher right. than it is to paint the black. So anyway, okay. But the Colin, but Colin McHugh, this is a big problem. This guy two years ago wins 19 games, right? A, another guy that gets by on his wits and is savvy. You know, not a guy that's going to blow anybody away. I mean, if he doesn't have precision, if he doesn't have great movement, he gets got, lit if up. he's got any, yeah, he gets lit up. And also, like, the last thing you want is for this guy to feel anything less than, you know, comfortable with his arm. I mean, geez, if a guy who averages, you know, 91 miles an hour with his fastball, 92, 93, has dead arm, you know, huge issue. That's a red flag. Yeah, I, I think I think the biggest issue with the with the Astros this year is definitely going to be Pitching staff. I, I, everything. I, 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 everything. We're talking about Davinsky, or we were just talking about Davinsky before the show. Yeah, well, Davinsky's a guy who I think has flexibility to get into that rotation if needed, but he's also got, uh, you know, the arm uh, to stabilize that bullpen. And I think I think that's the thing that's going to be the key for the Astros this year is the success of the bullpen. But, it, uh, but no, the no, the bullpen's going to be the bullpen's going to be very good. Don't worry about that. That's not look. By the way, bullpens now across the sport are excellent. So the much bigger problem for them, or maybe the bigger area of concern, is consistency from the starters. You know, every single team now plays, you know, five inning, six inning games because these guys come out of the bullpen. And that's a stretch sometimes for the Astros. I think. I, I, I think sometimes you I mean, see... In, in what direction? Meaning, for, But not from the bullpen. Not from the bullpen. I think you're right. starting so that's, pitchers. So that's I, I, but, but I that's think that puts more pressure. But is it good to have a guy like Davinsky who can give you two, you know, two to four innings and long relief? I don't know. Is that good for the Rockets that he may go to the Hall of Fame as <laughs> Bringing a Bringing back a joke from, what was it, November, December? 
Yeah, it was an asinine point then. It's an asinine point now. Yes, Dominski is very good, and his flexibility is very good. He actually could be he could he could become the closer if Giles is inconsistent, right? Like I think Giles is probably going to start in that closer role. And by the closer role, I don't necessarily mean that he's going to you know pitch the ninth, the ninth inning, right, right? Right? He'll pitch in the most pressure packed situations. Okay, that may not work out for him. Davinsky, I really think is the next guy up for that. It's not Gregerson, and as good a year of first half as he had last year. It's not going to be uh, Will Harris. So, yeah, Davinsky's going to be very valuable in the bullpen. But let me pose another scenario to you, right? McHugh, hurt. Maybe he's out. McCullers, maybe he gets hurt. I could also see Dallas Keuchel getting hurt, right? Then, you know, Jeff and AJ's hands are going to be forced to put Davinsky back in the starting rotation, which he's fine. He's capable of. But my point goes back to the starting rotation is everything with this team. That's another question I have for you with the rotation. We've seen a lot of, you know, over-unders put out there, a lot of projections, models that suggest the Astros can win between 90 and 95 games. With as, win, with as many question marks as this team has with their starting rotation, is that too optimistic, or are the expectations just that high for that offense? That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, you know, to be honest, I don't know. I think that I wouldn't worry, by the way, about win totals so much because the biggest bugaboo for this team is the Rangers. You know what oh, I mean? Absolutely. It's a thorn in the side. So if they play well against the Rangers, if they win the Rangers series this year, I think that's a much better indicator. I mean, obviously, right? It's going to be that's probably going to indicate whether they win the division. So I wouldn't worry too much about 90 to 95. That doesn't doesn't say like, you know, what I mean, 90 to 95 doesn't necessarily dictate to me what the Rangers outcome is going to be. It'll be, you know, everybody's going to be in that range, right? Between 88, I think it's probably lower than 95. 95 would be a lot of wins. It's a very good season. Yeah. So, but, so let's be more modest, right? Let's say somewhere between 88, 91 wins. Both, same thing for the Rangers, right? Um, I think if you get there, you're for sure in the playoffs as a wildcard team. Um. I you know I don't know enough about the records of the previous double wild cards to know like if there were teams that got squeezed. I believe out the Astros game. made it eighty five wins a few years ago, but you know each year's different. But the reason why I was I was saying that you know in that range I could see both teams, the Astros and the Rangers, living there. So my point is, it's not going to be about the win total. It's about it's going to it really is going to be if the Astros can win their series versus the Rangers. And get the edge in the division. That's going to be everything. I also think the Mariners are much improved. Totally underrated. Dark horse this year. They, ba- they barely missed the playoffs last year. Right. I, I, I think the AL West is underrated. Um, I, I, I think it's a great division. Um, but I, I do think the Astros are primed for long-term success. And on last week's show, I mentioned that Baseball America came out with the prospect ratings. And I, I know a few weeks ago we had Jed Kaplan on the show. And he said that he doesn't like it when people talk about prospects. And I totally get that. We Kaplan on last week? I think it was two, three weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, but he mentioned that he doesn't like people, Astros fans specifically, talking about the farm system because there's so much talent up here. And I get that point. But Baseball America ranked the Astros farm system number three. The next closest division rival was at 17. So I think there's a huge gap, and I think that plays well for the yeah, Astros but, but, long but, term. But no one's arguing that this team right, isn't, right. isn't built for the long term. Of right, course they are. Right. They're, right. 
I mean, they have between Springer Korea, but with just uh, all the Jose talent and, up here right now, yeah, and yeah. just to see that in the farm that you still have so much talent, whether it, it whether it comes up within the system or you use it as a trade piece in you know June July to get a an arm to bolter, bolster the uh, you know the rotation. Yeah, no, no, but oh, you mean trading? Oh, you think Jeff might trade one of the prospects for? I could see it happening. You know, well, much like Daryl Morey, to draw a comparison between two really sharp GMs in the city. They've been very, very savvy with the resources they have, meaning the gambles, they, they really are not the biggest gamblers, Maury much more than Jeff, but it's like Jeff has never pulled the trigger on dealing a valuable young player for a big-time arm. And a lot of people thought it could happen this year with Springer or Bregman with Chris Sale. Chris Sale, yeah. Oh, but, but no, but, he was, but Luna wasn't even close. No. To, and I, and I'm, 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 I'm saying to, to, to trading anybody of actual, like, re, of high value. So, I mean... I don't see. I really don't see that happening. They would have to. I mean, God, I don't even know who would be on the block come the summer. But you know, Jeff is not going to deal any of those guys unless he's going to get not just a really good starting pitcher, but probably a pitcher that's young, probably a pitcher that he thinks he can sign right with the backing of Jim Crane or whatever. It, it, it it's just not their style, you know. And I think that I, 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 I shudder to use the word hubris, but there is a tremendous amount of confidence from the front office in Houston, right? That they can develop anybody, they can get value out of anybody, and I think a lot of that deters them from making bigger gambles and throwing in whatever player would have been necessary to get sale, right? Like in that in that, in that hypothetical deal, Davinsky was probably in it, okay? But they did they throw in, I can't remember, what Francis Marte? Who's the... Martez, yeah. Okay, Martez. He was a guy that was rumored to be in there. Who's a guy that could compete for that fifth spot in the rotation or potentially right. be called up in May or June. So, so here's the thing. like Those guys are probably in it, right? What I was going to say is, if I'm the White Sox, I definitely was asking for Springer or Bregman. You know what I mean? And it's not an unreasonable request. So, But Jeff would never do that. Right. Ever. Never, he's never going to do that. Yeah, uh, you know, we talked a little bit uh, a few minutes ago about back into the bullpen. Uh, one guy who I'm interested to see this year is Michael Feliz and to see how he builds off of last year's success. He went 8-1 and one last season. His ERA kind of got up there a little bit with uh, 4.43 at the end of the season, but he pitched in 47 games, had 95 strikeouts with a 1.18 whip. Uh, he's a guy that throws gas, gets it up there to 100 miles an hour. He's another guy that you could potentially see in that rotation. Is, is it, oh, you think he's going? You think he'd be moving to the starting rotation? I think no. long term he could be. No, you don't think so? No. I Does don't. he compete for that closer spot or more of a setup guy? Yeah, he's far from that. He's he's still seventh inning, eighth inning for sure. You know his his off speed stuff isn't. It's it's just not. It's certainly it's not, not as overpowering as his fastball. Well, but I well, no kidding. Obviously, no kidding. <laughs> the guy throws ninety nine mile, miles an hour. What I was going to say is though, but he's not. I, I don't. I can't say I know him well enough to know what his potential is. But I know that his stuff right now, his off speed stuff, isn't of the caliber to be a closer. And I don't know what what makes you think the guy could be stretched out and be a, a starter. That's what he was brought up as in the system. Not throwing ninety nine miles an hour. No. But I think you you throw ninety six, ninety seven. That gives you something. It's, that's different. a hard. Tra- it's easy to say. It's a really hard transition. We that, do not see, see it so. Often. See, that's why I'm the host of a podcast and not a GM making decisions or a coach making decisions. It's one thing to do it in fantasy baseball or something like that, but it's it's another thing to do it in real life. And I see you laughing right now because I think that's a natural segue to our last topic. And uh, 
we've talked a lot about amateurs and college athletics and how we think that the NCAA is exploiting its student athletes. Did you see this ridiculous ruling this past week with five University of Richmond baseball players being suspended indefinitely for playing fantasy football? Like, how ridiculous is that? It's definitely a, a bad look for the NCAA, right? Like, I, I, I will say this before before we totally slander and like just bash the NCAA as always. They are in a lose. The NCAA has become, has been in a position, excuse me, to lose every single PR battle, right? Like it's just this money making monopoly. And every single news item that comes out, whether it's about Art Bryles, Joe Mixon, or, you know, like this ridiculous decision, like you said, to suspend these guys, it, it's interesting how our exclusive analysis of the NCAA as an entity, right? Is, is entirely negative, you know, and monstrous and villainous. Um, and they have, and they do nothing, it seems, to try to improve that, right? Like, the, the point I'm trying to make is nothing about this situation is good PR. And it would be so much more prudent for them to have not done this, for to have let it go, to not make it a big thing. The idea that they think they're set, that the NCAA thinks it's setting an example with these guys, the exact opposite. I agree. Strong words, and I, I think they're completely fair and accurate words as well. I think there needs to be a lot of reform, and I think it's ridiculous that you see the NCAA, I, I, what is it? There's an old saying that like if Alabama commits a recruiting violation, then, you know, Birmingham Tech or Southeastern Birmingham Tech gets hit with the death penalty. I mean, it's 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 maybe not apples to oranges. I'll let here, you, but no, but you had a point off mic about the hypocrisy compared with yeah, Madness. yeah. So in in March Madness, the NCAA promotes a bracket contest all the time, not for money, well, Austin. No, people don't play bracket contests for money, right? Never. Yeah, only pride. it's hypocrisy. Yeah, it's hypocrisy. But that's the NCAA for you. It's a hypocritical organization, and I think we've all come to that conclusion but at the same time everybody should stop playing fantasy football let me say let me just make that point i prefer just picking games and putting money behind it (laughs) (laughs) yeah i support your degenerative (laughs) habits but uh i can't get behind fantasy football anymore so maybe you know what maybe i'm gonna change my point maybe the ncaa did the right thing because people really should stop playing these stupid games fair point this is completely unpredictable everybody gets hurt that's true and if if you bet money if you're one of those lascivious fools who bets money? You know, you're just urinating in a way. Not so necessarily. You know what? I applaud the NCAA. I take my <laughs> I change my entire position. I applaud the NCAA for finally doing the righteous work of pointing out the fallacy of fantasy football. Fair point. Hot take. Uh, Hunter Atkins, appreciate you for uh, joining us in studio, and you are off to Palm Beach to cover the Astros for spring training. And let's do a some, live report. Let's do a live report. Live report. We don't do live reports. Let's do. Like, call me. Yeah, call me. I'll tell you what it's like down there. I'll call you maybe. Maybe. We'll make that the opener this week. <laughs> oh, that'd be fun. We didn't, you know, it's, it's funny. I couldn't get Doc Rivers this week because you know, we, we talked about the Clippers-Rockets matchup. I right. couldn't get him. He was busy. That's so disappointing. It's really disappointing. I have to say, like, in the past, I've been able to pull all kinds of fun guests for you guys. I just couldn't make it happen this week. You know, like, I can't, I can't always come through for you. Fair point. Well, Hunter, you came through for us this week, I think, joining us in studio. And uh, for those that want to follow your work, where can they find you on Twitter? They can find me at... You want to try to take another guess at it? Yeah. Hunter Atkins 35. I swear I've been promoting it no, correctly. No, you know. The last like two or three weeks. I yeah. don't know. I guess There's because I was shit. going through your email. Just sending you an email just a few moments Wh- ago. Who are you? The Russian hackers? You're going through my email? Yeah. Shh. 
I won't say anything else. All right. Hunter, appreciate it, man. It's been fun. Thanks as always. Closing time. Again, this is episode 84 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. So we just had two great guests join us. Uh, thanks to Jerry Hill from Baylor Bear Insider. You can follow him on Twitter at View From Hill. And also thanks to Hunter Atkins, who is a contributor to the podcast here, for joining us in studio as we broke down uh, you know, the latest with the Houston Rockets and also spring training and expectations for the Houston Astros. And just a reminder, you can follow Hunter on Twitter at HunterAtkins35. He will be in Florida this week covering spring training for the Astros. Uh, I believe through March 22nd or 23rd. Uh, so a, a lot of excitement here uh, in Houston with the Rockets and of course the Astros as they begin to uh, open up the season. But Jeremy, uh, we had a great conversation with Jerry and I'm curious, uh, what were your thoughts? I mean, we've got uh, Matt Rule coming in here and doing great things with Baylor Athletics. And of course, uh, the job that Scott Drew and Kim Mulkey have done with the basketball programs this year has just been phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, no, I was really, I mean, Jerry really knows his stuff. Um, much, <laughs> more of a, much more of a stats man than I am. Um, I, actually, I'm really encouraged by, uh, you know, hearing his analysis, hearing his take on Baylor. Actually, you know, he, he, you, when we talk when we talk to guests about Baylor who really know their stuff, it really, they paint a rosier picture of Baylor than maybe if you're just grazing news stories you might get. I mean, the athletics program really is doing really well right now. We men's basketball, women's basketball, baseball, and really football here with Matt Rule coming into a really tough situation and doing a great job with recruiting and coaching hires, you know, coming from a completely different part of the country with a different football culture and really making a huge impact. I think that there is, if you're a Baylor fan, this is a really exciting time. Um, you know, who knows what spring ball and the fall season will yield, but uh, really a lot of thanks to Jerry for coming on and, and talking shop with us. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we we wanted to discuss a little bit about Baylor baseball on the show, but uh, Baylor baseball offers you a great start. Steve Rodriguez has done a hell of a job in his second season with the program. Uh, Bears started off 10-0, and as Jerry mentioned, that was the you know the longest winning streak to start a season since 1984, which is crazy. And then, uh, you know, of course, they were in Houston this past week with the Minute Maid Shriners Classic. Uh, knocked off Old Miss on Friday. Uh, played pretty well against LSU, but of course, uh, Poche is a phenomenal left-handed pitcher and just shut down the Bears as Bears lost to LSU 4 to nothing. And as we are recording right now, uh, Baylor is about to start play against Texas A&M. Uh, so a lot of excitement, and you've got to feel confident with the direction that Baylor is heading from a baseball perspective, especially after firing Steve Smith and missing the uh, the NCAA baseball tournament the last few years. And as a baseball guy, I absolutely love to see success on the diamond. Yeah, and I'm not a baseball guy, as you guys all well know, but I am. And that's why Hunter and I just spoke about Astros. Exactly. We knew you, we no. knew you couldn't do it. Right, right. Well, and you know what? You, you know, I'm not a baseball guy, but I am a hate the Aggies guy when it comes to Baylor playing A&M. So that sick is em. definitely absolutely sick him. Um, as for Hunter Atkins, it was funny. He was here and then he disappeared. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually a little befuddled. He was here in the studio <laughs> and then just all of a sudden disappeared. He also won't, won't answer any of my texts. I send him a lot of kissy emojis and he just never gets back to me. I'm wondering if uh, maybe I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> so Hunter, if you're listening to this, please text me back. Yeah, Hunter was actually at Barbecue Cook-Off on Thursday night. Uh, a lot of fun. Uh, he wasn't a huge fan of the barbecue, to be honest. And uh, the, the tent that we were at on Saturday uh, was the same tent that I was at on Thursday. And the barbecue there just was not that great but saturday night they really stepped up the game i mean i loved it yeah it was incredible uh the the, the barbecue was actually really good a little greasy a little fattening but what which is, is everything you want well, exactly what and the sauce the sauce was amazing that's what made so, it and you know what there is the the best kind of barbecue is barbecue that's free so exactly i had no problem with the barbecue we had yeah absolutely so uh houston livestock show and radio starts on tuesday and of course it's gonna be going on the next three weeks but uh, jeremy it's been great uh having you in studio again the last two weeks and going back and forth and some interesting topics this week yeah uh absolutely i mean between uber and elon musk and the combine definitely a really interesting week so 
Uh, looking forward to, to coming up here with spring ball and really the tournament here yeah. that starts this next week. I'm really excited. Yeah, of course, the Big 12 men's basketball tournament starts this week, and uh, Baylor is the number three seed. Uh, they'll square off against Kansas State, I believe, Thursday evening at 8 o'clock. Uh, but a lot of excitement uh, as we gear up for March Madness, and one week from today is the selection Sunday. So we'll see where uh, Baylor lands in the NCAA tournament. Uh, it doesn't look like Texas or Texas A&M will make the tournament. U of H uh, is actually on the bubble right now. So depending on what they can do in the AAC tournament, they might be making making the, uh, the NCAA field this year. So that'd be very exciting for Kelvin Sampson and what the Cougs are doing here in Houston. But another team to look out for within the state of Texas would be SMU. They are just doing a phenomenal job this year, ranked in the top 20, probably going to be around a 4-5 or five seed in the tournament and probably a very dangerous out. If I'm Baylor, I do not want to play them uh, You know, in the, in, in the second or third round of the tournament. But uh, we will definitely be t- discussing the NCAA tournament a little bit more next week on the show. We'll have Paul Catalina from ESPN Radio uh, joining us on the show. But if you want to follow our work in a little bit more you can search weekly brewcast on facebook twitter instagram and youtube also we want to we want you to go to itunes and uh, leave us a five-star review tell us what you like about the show give us show ideas interview ideas or tips or uh, subjects that you would like us to discuss but also, we want to make sure that you follow our website at weeklybrewcast.com. We post great content there each week. But uh, again, we had a great time in studio today. Jeremy, uh, thanks again for joining uh, me this week. It's uh, It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been a blast, Austin. And um, you can follow us on social media. I'm at Fiesta 8 and you are at a Staten. And if you want to follow our other co-host, uh, you can follow K. Michael Cook on Twitter and also Hunter Atkins 35. And of course, he'll be providing great updates from Astros spring training in Florida. Yeah. And perhaps he he can he can DM me and maybe slide into the me. DMs. Maybe respond to me that way. He hasn't responded to any of my letters. Hunter, either. if you're listening, slide into Jeremy's DMs right now. I think he would really appreciate that. But uh, it, it's been a lot of fun this weekend on behalf of my co-host. Jeremy Paxton. My name is Austin Statton, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew 